So, so the, the quick delineation is that I didn't do it for free because you do it for free, they don't value your time at all. But I did it for like very little return on time. So that way then it, it requires them to do something. Like because when you do a sale, it, you gotta get their credit card, right? You gotta you gotta get them to sign the invoice. So so I do I do it for pretty much what felt like for free for me, which is like 10 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour, just to get their commitment. And also then they would be on board with it too as well. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers Podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, we are so pumped today to have Charlie Gao on. I could start getting into all the accolades and the accomplishments that this man has, but it would take up the majority of our episode. So I'm just going to give you a few highlights, one of which is that this man is doing self-storage, the way he worked up through it, the way he's increased his income per hour and just overall is fascinating. We're gonna show you guys how he went from $15 an hour to $1,500 an hour, if you can imagine that. This man has also had huge inroads into self-storage, assisted living, and he's got deals right now that are paying him five, six, maybe even seven different ways. We're gonna dive into that, but we're also gonna obviously dive into a lot of the mindsets and other things that are behind the scenes. But as always, Charlie, if you can get us started by talking about what is the craziest real estate story or experience you've had so far in your career? Well, I know I'm still kind of shocked because I feel you dropped the mic right off the bat about me. So uh, I don't, how do I top what you just said about me, right? Um, oh, it's crazy stories. Um, the one that stands off right off that I've been telling a lot is um, we caught a local politician uh, that was. Um, I can't really say who, but they, they, I mean, this is a small enough town that everybody knew who this politician was uh, with a prostitute in the middle of the winter in one of our storage units. Um, and I mean, it's just kind of crazy. I'm like, dude, there's a hotel, like motel, cheap motel, like right down the road. And we have video surveillance cameras. So why would you do that? So I'll say that was probably one of the craziest ones uh, that we were kind of in the process of buying. I got a great deal on that. Uh, and, you know, and it's... Uh, People actually will actually reach out to us and ask us about that. We're kind of like, you know, we just we just kind of ignore it. But uh, people still, even it's been over two years, they still ask us about like, hey, do you have that video footage? You know, whatnot. Because we didn't post it to YouTube or anything, but they, they, everybody just knows about it that has happened. So you probably had a lot of the media coming to you like, hey, we'll give you some money as a, as a bounty or reward for giving us the footage. Um, no, we didn't have a lot of media or anything like that. Cause I just, I didn't want, I mean, I guess people always say good press is, or any press is good press, but yeah. I just didn't want that to be, oh, this is what happened. Plus that's not like, I mean, that's not a good branding that, oh, not your business people, model. I mean, people are thinking like, well, am I going to see people with needles there too as well? You know? So, um, so if anything, we, uh, that was one of the things where we're like, wow, we got, we're going to light this place up. I'm going to put in tons of video cameras. So we put even more. Uh, we just made sure, like, we don't want anybody to think that this is a real possibility. Like, so, and then that's kind of one of our trademarks for facilities that we always, uh, we light stuff up like crazy and we have HD video cameras all over the place too. Right on, right? <laughs> what a crazy thing, man. So let's dive into your journey in self-storage. Like doing the pre-call with you was just really, really exciting because you had a process that I don't think many people believe in or follow, but should. So can you tell us precisely, like, what was your entry into the self-storage game and walk us through till now, which charging 1500 bucks plus an hour for, for what you do? 
Yeah, so my uh, my entry was uh, pretty much just grinding like a lot of people. I, my first exposure was to his, my, my dad had a facility where he had a, across the street from his apartment complex. The guy called my dad's accountant, who was the owner of record, and said, hey, do you guys want to buy this across the street? And so I was kind of managing it and doing that. But to be honest, that was before all this technology was in place. Like, they didn't have software. Everything was like, um, you know, that graphing paper type where you, each square was like a month. You check it off. And then if you lost that clipboard, you know, the, the world was pulling apart, you know. So that, that was kind of how we managed it back then. Um, but how I got back into self-storage was um, I had um, – I was doing quite a bit on the multifamily side on the brokerage. And it got to the point where if I wanted to invest in my market locally, I, I needed to switch asset classes because I did not want to compete against my own clients on the multifamily side. And so um, I was like, you know, I was buying a lot of multifamily, but then my clients were like, hey, if you got a deal, let me know. And then it got to the point where I was like, well, I just made a $60,000 commission off of selling a multi-million dollar property. I was going to buy this other one for myself, but I know you're in the middle of a 1031. So I, I just didn't want to be put in that situation. So you know what? I wanted to get back into sell storage anyway. So uh, that's how I, I kind of based. I started my model from soliciting multifamilies over, moved it over to sell storage. And then more specifically beyond that, I basically offered my time almost free to anybody that would allow me to work for them. And by say almost free, um, I ran to a lot of self-storage owners that were mom and pops that they're, you know, everybody knows in the community. They coach the high school football team or whatever, and they would manage like uh, the facility. And what would happen is people would come up, you know, like call them up or, you know, drop by their house and like leave a payment in their mailbox cash or say, hey, Jimmy needs to get his dentures removed or whatever. Can you uh, give us like uh, you know, a couple months of forbearance? And it just got to the point where people weren't actually treating them like a business owner. They're treating them as like, you know, they're just kind of running over them. And so where I came into place was I'm like, you know, let me run this facility and put the systems in place for you. So that way that you can run it like a business. People will treat you like a business owner. And more importantly, you can actually get the prices up to where they need to be. So I would come in and I would essentially take like, you know, 2000 4000 6000 hours, whatever I thought I could get. Um, and I'd raise the prices on these facilities where most of the time they were making my fee back in two to three months just from rent raises. So it was a total no brainer. And then what was nice about it too, is I got to learn on the job. I got to learn how to, what is the best way to tell people we're raising their rents? What is the best way to communicate in mass? What is the best way to get people on all electronic? You know, and I kept doing that over and over again. Like, you know, it sucked. It was a huge time commitment, but each time I got more and more efficient. So by the time I finally bought my own facility, I, I, couldn't, I didn't have to say, yeah, I'm a noob. I want to buy my first facility. I could say, well, I managed this facility down the road from you. I've managed these five as well. I've also been property manager for six other facilities. So I could really say that like, yes, this is my first facility on my own, but I've been in the self-storage industry. I'm seasoned. I'm as, as basically experienced as a new buyer as you possibly could be. And so that's what led me to get into my first deal. It also allowed me to use uh, other people's money on my first deal as I had an investor that funded almost the entire deal. Simply because he just knew that I, I, they knew that I could run the deal um, because they knew I ran these other facilities. This is so incredible. So, and I don't know the answer to this question, which is why I'm so excited to ask it. And I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here. So you, you offered to work for free and they, they agreed. Did you find that because you were working for free and not for pay, that the owners were far more generous with you in regards to the information they shared and 
processes that they gave you? So, so the, the quick delineation is that I didn't do it for free because you do it for free. They don't value your time at all, but I did it for like very little return on time. So that way then it, it requires them to do something like it because when you do a sale, it, you got to get their credit card, right? You got to, you got to get them to sign the invoice. So, so I do, I do it for pretty much what felt like for free for me, which is like 10 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour just to get their commitment. And also then they would be on board with it too as well. So that, that's kind of the, the, the difference there with doing that. So cool. And so along with that, if someone wanted to get in, it doesn't have to be self-storage, but just, they want to get into a, a maybe complicated niche that has crazy upside potential, has no knowledge or no value to bring to that niche. Do you recommend that they work for free or do you recommend they do it exactly like you did it and say, Hey, I'll work for you for minimum wage for it. How would you, how would you advise it? So the common thing I think a lot of people run into with this problem is because everybody offers like, oh, I'll do this for free. I'll do this for free. But then they're like, I'll do this for free because I want something back in return. Hmm. A lot of times when I would do these things, I really didn't expect something back in return because I knew that by me doing the task, I was learning. So that's all I needed to do. And even like, so I'll give you a really good example. Um, Very, very well-known podcaster. Um, I would say that anybody in real estate has probably heard his name. I came, I went up to him and I said, Hey, I'm really good with numbers. I'm really good with data analysis. If you need in, anything, data entry or whatever, you know, let me know and I, I, I'll do it. So he gave me like a, this, this sheet and said, Hey, I want you to basically do data entry. And then, and then what happens? I did that for him really quickly. Anybody can do the data entry, but I can't, but and I, I didn't learn anything from it, but I did it so well. So efficiently, he's like, wow, you did a great job. Okay. Now can you do this? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And then before you know it, he kept giving me more things. And then he was giving me things that I was learning from because he had to give me background. He had to teach me like, why am I doing this line item? Or why am I putting these numbers? Where am I finding this? And so he's teaching me how to do the performa. Now it's up to me how to figure out the rest on my own. Like I'm not, I'm not, I never, I never asked him any questions about like my own agenda. All I did was ask questions about how to do the, the performas. But I learned how to do the performas because he had to teach me how to do them to do it for him. So then I was doing like 10, $20 million apartment complexes. And so when I went back down to like smaller ones, it was like easy. I mean, I, I've been doing these 17, 18, 19 page pro formas. This is so that's brilliant. how I, I, so that was the way that I just, I just build value. Like I didn't expect anything back from them. I just focused on building so much value for them that they wanted to help me out because by helping me out, they was helping themselves out as well. Hundred percent, and I love from a sales perspective. Love the context of how you don't even have to ask for anything because the thing that you need is your ask. Your questions are wrapped up in serving them, and so there is zero feeling on their part that they're having to give to you. So you're just continually building the goodwill and the reciprocity as you're getting what you need. Like that is from a sales perspective. I mean, that is brilliant. Yeah. So diving into this a bit deeper, so you go in, you learn proformas, and proformas are the way that, as you know, you value properties. So you've got management that you're you're picking up, you're getting paid 10, 15 bucks an hour to learn management. You're getting free coaching that probably cost most people 10 to $30,000. You're getting for free uh, in exchange for punching a few numbers into a computer and customizing some spreadsheets going that route. Like, give us more, like what else was in the process of, of building up to, to being able to buy your first deal? 
Uh, well, my first deal on self-storage, um, you know, the, the biggest thing was um, building rapport with uh, the self-storage owners. Um, and because there's a, there a, a significant difference in finding and communicating with these self-storage owners from the multifamily owners. Because most of these multis I was targeting, they had property manager in place. And then I had a gatekeeper and I had to find a way to either get around the gatekeeper or make it so the gatekeeper would allow me to speak to it. Whereas when I was speaking to self-storage... One of the nice things about it is when you direct market to self storage, is that you get direct hold of the uh, of the self storage owner. Now the downside about that, however, though, is that now I got fifteen guys I compete with. Whereas if I get through to a forty unit owner, maybe I only have one or two guys that I'm competing with because they had that huge roadblock. So, so I think that was probably the biggest transition from making the two. But outside of that, it was really just kind of what you do too. I, I went to people now. It's like, listen, I got the. Pro forma side, I got banks on my side. I also have a commercial lending background too as well. So I got a reference there. And then I got a reference from self-storage facility owners. I, I tell people this still even now that if you split Michigan in half, anything west of 127, everybody knows who I am. They, they may, they may uh, you know, not have talked to me a while, but everybody knows who I am. I, they, everybody calls me for advice. I give it freely. And, and that was the other thing too, going back to is that a lot of these self-storage owners, like this owner that I was working with, I wanted to buy the property from him. He wasn't ready for the pro to sell the property, but he was kind of like, hey, so what does this company do? What does this company do? And, you know, obviously I had to exercise discretion because I can't just tell him everything about what, you know, this guy is doing. But I, I gave him tips here and there. And I'm like, you know, listen, David, and that's his real name. I'm like, I'm asking for you is that when you finally do sell, you give me the first go at buying it. And if I don't buy it, then you give me the first squat listing it if you list it. I don't need you to basically, um, and this guy was actually a Christian as well. You don't have to sign anything. I'm just going to accept your word for it. I'm a man of my word. I expect that you're a man of your word. And that's exactly what happened when he was time to already uh, sell it to me. He's like, you know, I really appreciate you did all these things. Now, granted, I also increased the value of his facility, so I had to pay a little bit more for it. But on the back end, it also made things a little bit easier for me because now my systems are in place. So I have less things to put into place because he's not run like, you know, like, like a super small mom and pop. We actually have some actual procedures and systems in place at that point in time. This is absolutely fantastic, Charlie. I love how value driven you are. I mean, it's totally, it's clear as day. Um, it's radiating off the screen and you're also obviously very relationship driven in the way that you drive your business. So I'm just curious, like what gave you the idea? to run it that way as opposed to you know how anybody else would do it you know getting a job and and so on and so forth so you it seemed like you were very intentional from the very beginning like, i'm going to help people out free and i'm going to get the value back in return what gave you that idea you know honestly i think uh, i was uh, because i worked uh so i i when i was in california and i lived through the crash um uh, actually i was a strength and conditioning coach personal trainer and then after that i worked in commercial lending and I saw a lot of wealthy people in real estate uh, uh, lose a lot of people's money or just or, or their money was lost to somebody else. So I was always terrified of losing people's money. So by, by being so conservative, I think that's why I was always focused on like, okay, let's create value for this person. So later on when somebody looks at it, they can't say like, hey, Charlie did me wrong. Like I, I didn't want anything about that because I, I, real, I, I saw what happened when these people had a reputation destroyed, what that value was lost. So that was one thing. Uh, the other thing about it too is, and I say this pretty frequently, that I, I never felt pressure to have to uh, to kill what I eat. 
because I already has had a super strong W2 income. So you know, I find a lot of times you see people like, especially in wholesaling or realtors, where they just jump right into it and they have so much pressure to make money right away because if they don't, then they're not going to pay their mortgage or whatnot. When I started out in real estate, I mean, the first seven years, every single dollar I had in real estate went back into real estate. If I missed out on commission, if I didn't get this deal, okay, that's fine. I still got this W-2 job supporting everything. I live below my means on my W-2 job. So I was putting 20, 30% of my income from my W-2 job on top of that, on top of taking all the proceeds from my real estate and putting it back in. And so because I never had that pressure that I, I need to perform, I need to close a deal, I have to buy a self-storage facility. I think that's what allowed me to build my brand so organically. Now, the flip side, if I had that pressure, could I have been a millionaire 10 years faster? That is a very fair argument. I probably could have. But, um, but at the same time, I think that's also a lot of that. Once I made, made a move, it was so fast once I decided to make that move. I think there's so much value in what you're saying. There's some some ideals that you have that I share that that I think have served me well, and it, they it seem to have served you well too. Like one of the ideals I had when I left sales for real estate was I didn't want to call upon any of my family right away because I wanted to make sure I had a real business. I didn't want to hurt anybody financially by them trusting me with their home when I hadn't really done deals. You know, I wanted to build those skills, and and so I, I think that's tremendous. Talk about like so when you're at your W two, you're working a full time job, I'm assuming, and then you're doing this on the side. What was that like? You know, did that feel like much sacrifice having to work the full-time job and doing the side hustle? Honestly, it really didn't feel like it because I enjoyed it that much. I enjoyed basically working for myself. I, I enjoyed all the trips to Home Depot. Now, obviously that wore off after a while, but I, I mean, I seriously enjoyed that. I controlled my own destiny, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I quickly saw like, you know, after I did my first flip and I made, you know, like half of what I made in a year, I was like, okay, I, I know I can do this. So, uh, so I, I, I really, uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time, but like people see the vacations I go on. They, they see, uh, you, everybody wants to post basically the vacations, the uh, new car, the new, uh, the new house, whatever, but they don't see the sacrifices they made. They don't see that. Like, you know, I remember uh, in my twenties, um, I lived in a trailer park with a guy that was in his 60s, and he creeped my girlfriend out so much she wouldn't even come visit me at the trailer park. And, and then, and then when we when I was single, I just I remember there was one time I was at the bar. My wife is going to kill me for saying this, but I remember there was this girl I was talking at the bar, and we're trying to talk about like your place or mine. And I was like your place, and she's like no, your place. I'm like no, really your <laughs> place because we're not going to go back to the trailer park with my roommate, you know. So. I had to make a lot of sacrifices there, but you know, when I look back on it, I mean, I had fun. I mean, I definitely was deprived myself a lot of things, but I definitely had a lot of fun. I definitely did a lot of vacations and things like that. But I mean, I, I definitely made sacrifices, especially my social life. You know, I, I wasn't going to uh, the bars every week and I definitely did have fun, but uh, I, I didn't really look at as much of a sacrifice though, to be honest. Um, absolutely on point. I mean, it's not really a sacrifice because you're investing that time for a greater future. So, I mean, ultimately it's an investment more so than a sacrifice. So, I mean, I love that you're able to do that. I'm going to backtrack a little bit, um, because you mentioned you were doing some direct outreach to the self storage owners. And I'm just curious what that looked like. Were you doing mailers or were you calling cold or just kind of give me an idea there? Uh, we did pretty much everything, but to be honest, the most effective way was simply a quick blurb about 
who I am, why I'm interested in their facility, and also letting them know that like I've been through their facility or or I, I know details about it. So, um, and, and because uh, what's the approach called? I can't remember. It's uh, so it's the book from called the Rainmaker. But one of the ways the book talks about a sales approach essentially is that you ask questions that are so qualified. That if I ask you that question, you immediately know, oh, this guy knows the industry. He is in it. So if I say, hey, I saw that, you know, I noticed you use this software. You know, how do you like this compared to other softwares? You know, like very industry specific questions. So even though I was asking a question, in reality, my purpose of that question was to show them like, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. Those six other schmucks, they're schmucks. This guy, if I sell it to him, he won't mess up. So that was kind of like my my approach that really made it my secret sauce that other people couldn't follow because if they were going after a really experienced person, the size of the deal I was looking for was probably too small for them. So they needed to buy at a, like a smoking deal to really make sense. And if it was a first time buyer, then they had that first huddle of that trying to get into that first deal. Yeah, this is tremendous. So essentially you leverage the knowledge that you built in working for cheap and working for free, plus the time spent reading these books to gain the knowledge, to be able to ask questions that immediately endeared yourself to these, these storage owners, right? Because they're like, oh my gosh, if this person can ask these questions, he's going to be a value to me. If you don't mind sharing, like what was, what was the general pitch? What, as you started reaching out, was it, Hey, I want to buy, or was it, Hey, I'd like to give you free knowledge. I'd like to consult for you. What was the general offer? It definitely wasn't free knowledge because if you do that, you can definitely rub somebody off the wrong way that, hey, your place is crap. Like I, I, I can run it better for you. So right. I, it definitely wasn't that. So it was probably more along the lines like, hi, this is Charlie. Um, I drove by your facility on the way to a wedding this weekend. I didn't have time to stop by uh, and really take a closer look. But um, I noticed that, like, you know, used track to steel looked like it was just built recently and it looks like you got room for expansion. This is exactly the type of deal I'm looking for. And, um, you know, I actually have ran um, a couple other facilities in your market too, as well. So I'm very familiar with the market. I'd be curious to see if you might be interested in selling. Beautiful. So something along those lines. So basically, I'm local because everybody wants to go somewhere local. Two, I, I'm familiar with, okay, the steel company they use. So I, I'm familiar with the industry itself. And then three, I basically already qualified this through a number of my own personal metrics that I didn't tell them that I know I, I'm interested because of so-and-so reason. You know, and so in that case, it was, I see there's an expansion opportunity. So that's why I'm interested in this, this specific facility. I love what you're doing there because that's very similar to how people do cold outreach for like a real estate investing thing, like, um, you know, any off-market deal, right? But what you did, which is actually brilliant, is you made it tailored to the actual house, or not the house, but the storage facility rather. And because you're specific, the odds of them replying are like tenfold over what they would be since you're not specific. And as you said, you, you were um, infusing industry knowledge in there too, which also shows that you know, you're not just some random, random dude sending stuff out there. You know, You showed you know the industry and you know their facility, which is just brilliant. So when you were doing that, did you actually do the research on every single one of them or did you build a system to make it somewhat automated, but still only available to be sent to that person? 
So, you know, one of the things is that I, I've never done, I, I, I've definitely spent money on my Kenyan uh, education, but I've never done Guru courses. I've never like tried to sound like everybody else. So because I was always doing trial and error and messing things up, I got to make my approach sound very personable and it didn't sound like anybody else. So that was one thing uh, that really, I think it did it because I think the philosophy of uh, like a lot of wholesalers I direct my campaign is volume, 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 like one mailer every six weeks for the first year, then followed by a mailer every 18 weeks. Then we'll do postcard and everybody's got this system. And essentially, I was kind of like, well, let's just break up the system because if this guy's hearing this exact same or on this exact same drip campaign from 12 people, let's do it different. And so for me, I'm like, you know what? I'm actually banging out calls. I am actually doing uh, mailers. I'm actually doing emails. So rather than try to do this big, massive campaign that's really costly, let's just come up with such a strong impression and hope that holds up for a year or two. You know, like, and so like for me, I'll say outrageous things to people just joking around like, uh, you know, like we'll be talking to a guy. I'm like, oh, I saw you got you were wearing dickies. I'm like, we should go. Uh, and then like, we'll be talking. And it's like, yeah, you know. And then he's drinking a beer. And then uh, from that point on, I'm like, I'll, I'll, I'll like, you know, like I, I'd wear like my dickies and my my beer with them. And then I'd be joking around, like, hey man, I, I really wanted us to be twinning today. And, and like this one owner that I actually did that with. Five years after I stopped speaking with them, he's like, I still remember you to this day because that was the funniest thing. I almost peed my pants when you did that. So <laughs> I just, I, I do things that are so unique. I just want to be remembered. I try to make that strong impression. The easiest way I can think of is that like, when I go to a real estate convention or real estate meetup and I get done, I'm like, oh my gosh, I met all these awesome people. Like I, I, I got like 50 networks in my thing, you know, in my, my roller decks. And then after I'm done, I'm kind of like, I don't remember any of them because I had like 60 back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back transactions. I don't remember anybody. So I was like, you know, I would have been better off just talking to two or three guys, getting to know them really well, and just build that relationship over the next five years with them. So that's what I'm really trying to do. I'm not going after volume. I'm not calling 70, 80, 90 people a day. I'm calling three, four, five, six, seven light deals a day and really, really just making that super strong impression on them. So that way then they remember me. They don't, I don't have to remind them of constant mailers, which to be honest, I hate that approach too. I can't stand when I get six, seven mailers. I just start throwing them away or tell them, hey, dude, just leave me alone. So. Love this. So let's talk about the translated knowledge that and the way that you have been able to simplify it so much that even your daughter can, if someone questioned her about self-storage, could spit out the metrics of a deal. So can, can you talk about the, the metrics a little bit and, and talk about how you've simplified it to that level? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I had a larger staff, like, you know, pre-crash. And one of the things that I really struggle with is that I, I just felt like I was always losing staff to other people. Like you get them trained and then somebody is like, oh, Charles trained you. Let me pay you 20 bucks or, you know, like uh, more a week than he does. And then people were leaving. And so, uh, so really what I essentially adopted is I adopted a military approach where in the military, you are always training your replacement. So the day that you start with us, anything you're doing that you're learning that is not a standard op procedure, you are immediately turning into a standard operating procedure for your placement. And so we make it where you understand it. And then what we do then is then uh, my daughter, who essentially has no background and a lot of the stuff, it, it's starting to get hard now because now she does uh, have a background a little bit. I would basically say, I want you to read this and I, I want you to be as annoying as possible. Anything you don't understand, I, I want to be like kindergarten cop. Like I, I want you to ask every question possible 
to make sure that you know exactly how this is done. And then once that's perfected, then I'll take it to somebody else. So I might pay somebody else or I can ask just a general investor community or whatever. And then what we do then at that point in time is then if somebody else has no knowledge in the industry, can do this senior opera speech procedure the exact way you want, then we go. And so then we'll figure out, okay, like, you know, like some, someone might say, you need to log into this website. And then it'll be like, well, where's the website? I mean, oh, shoot, we didn't even put that in there. Okay, we got to put the, where the website's at. I mean, okay, so now we need you to figure out this uh, SOP. Well, what's an SOP? I mean, okay, well, now we got to define standard operating procedure. So we're getting so granular that an uh, 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old can basically explain it. And then we're, we're hitting on, okay, what is common sense to you versus what is common sense to me? Because now that I've been in the industry so long, common sense to me is much, much beyond somebody else that has no industry that. So once we build that out, now when I bring somebody on, I can get them trained in two to four weeks. Or I, the other one is that we actually did have something that didn't make it through our process. In two weeks, I can tell you, you're not ready. You're not going to grasp this because I know other people that have. So I can I can either onboard somebody or decide that they're not going to make it with pretty much within two weeks. I'm just curious, how old is your daughter? Uh, she's 10 now. She's 10. So your SOPs are so detailed that somebody with almost no knowledge of the industry could do it. I'm 10 years old. And you said that she probably started two, three years ago. Well, it's not that they're detailed. It's so simple because if I make something super detailed and I give somebody just like 2000, like uh, instructions, what happens? It's just kind of like when we get that, like that big thing from Ikea and then we're just like, eh, I'll just try to put it together. I'm not going to read through every single thing. So so I, we make it simple, as simple as possible. And we make sure we focus on the keys that they need to focus on. Because if we get too detailed, sometimes we're like, well, shoot, they're taking us too literal now. So so it's, it's so simple would be the word I would use, not detailed. Um, that's a fantastic response. I mean, I love the way that you articulated that too, because it's like, it's one of those things, like somebody that knows something really well, if you know it really well, you could explain it in a context that is simple and concise and it, it contains brevity, right? Like that's somebody that yeah. truly has knowledge is something that's brief and simple. Somebody that takes 10 minutes to explain something, they might understand it, but they don't have true mastery of it. So, I mean, I loved the, 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 the description you just had. So, I mean, I'll give you a better example. So, so I have self-storage deals that like, you know, we will take investors on and my pitch is always, I mean, we have a detailed presentation, but ultimately the simple pitch is this. I can build between $50 and $60 a square foot. Market's trading between $89 a square foot. That's a $30 delta. I'm building 50,000 square feet. 30 times 50,000, 10-year-old math, $1.5 million. The day that we finished building this facility, I created $1.5 million of value. That's how we're going to make you money. That's my pitch. Takes one minute right there. Absolutely love it. So I have to dive into this SOP a little bit deeper because I have not talked on this real estate podcast anybody about SOP building like this. So let's say you have a set of procedures that are very extensive and your goal is not only to make it comprehensive, but to make it simple. So what is the exact method that you use? Do you take it and instead of putting it all on like one packet, do you put it like slide by slide where you hide what's behind so they don't feel the magnitude of what's ahead of them? Or how do you combine that? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's uh, 
it's breaking it down in, in steps. So like, let's go back to that, that our perform. Our performance are average between 17 and 24 pages. So the very, very first page is the most basic. So then we start that. Okay, let's focus on the first page of Performa, which is basically entering the existing rent roll and also putting the pro forma rent roll of what we believe we can actually get. So that, and then, and then and really what I, the, and then I have like a, a purpose kind of for each page. So that purpose of that page is we want to know that, okay, right now it's 10,000 rents and we can re raise based on this pro forma rent roll to 12,000. So 2000 times 12 divided by 0 0.077 cap. That's how much value we can create just by rent raises. So that is the purpose of this is how much value can we force on that? So, so that, that's a simple thing for that. Okay. So let's see if you can do this. Let's see if you know where to find the numbers. Let's see if you know what to request. So if I say, Hey, I need you to get uh, a pro forma, uh, rent roll analysis done, then they should be able to, uh, <laughs> I, I've actually had to let go of somebody before because I had to explain them like, hey, you're, you're clicking on the file that says rent roll because it just got to a point where I'm like, okay, we, we, we're we getting so ridiculous creative that if you can't use common sense to say that rent roll is rent roll, like, you know, do that, then we can't do that. Now, if you're saying, hey, where do I find pro forma market analysis? Okay, well, it's through these softwares. It's through CoStar, apartments.com, uh, Facebook Marketplace, you know, whatever. So then, then we ask you where to get it for. And then if there's a login, we actually will give them the login too as well. So they had the login, everything's in one spot. And then that's how they access it. Once they completed that aspect of it, okay, now we go to phase two. Phase two, now we just focus on that aspect. We also have screenshots and we also have videos to also accompany these standard operating procedures as well. But most of the time I prefer that it is uh, written so clear that they can go off just to that and then also just screenshots. Love this. I mean, this, this really gives me an idea for how, like we've got some SOPs we've been working on and similar to you, we're trying to be as like, we want to these people to know exactly what to do and that there'd be no guesswork. And yet I think one of the mistakes that we're making that's becoming clear to me in this conversation is that we're throwing the kitchen sink them at all at once. And there could be some overload. Whereas I love your combination between when and how to reveal what it is. So it stays both, you know, fully educational and, and simple. So if I can divert a little bit here, I'd like to talk a little bit about you being a dad. So I am a father of four children. Can you share with us like, Obviously, you're you're trying to to make it, the process is great for your employees by bringing in your kids, but I'm sure there's probably some yeah. hidden benefit for your kids getting to learn this stuff. So, what is what is your desire and goals to train your kids up and instill some of this knowledge as they get older? Yeah, so uh, my I'm like a, kind of a legend amongst my parents about how financially like uh, literate my kids are. Like uh, like just the other day. Like my daughter was talking about her birthday partner and her birthday cake. And I was like, you're over budget already. And then the mom was like, whoa, 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 what? Your kid has a budget for their birthday party. I'm like, yeah, like, you know, we go through the plan. We see like reasonably where we can spend what. So you got this. Uh, so you want 10 kids. Okay. Well then now your, your per capita spend per kid is less. So, so <laughs> yes, no, there definitely is, um, uh, uh, Part of that, that I enjoyed the fact that they are going to become financially dependent. 
Um, I don't know if they're going to run the family business. Um, that is my hope for them, but I really try to make it known to them that they can, they can do whatever they want. I'm just, uh, you know, like my, my daughter said she wanted to be an artist for like three years. And I was just like, Oh, please get out of this face. Not that I don't like artists, but I just, you know, so I, I will try to be open, whatever she chooses. Uh, you know, I just want her to be happy. So, um, so from that aspect, yes, there is some motivation there that I do want them to be financially literate, but it's mainly simply that like, if an eight-year-old can understand it, especially because an eight-year-old will ask questions and don't even realize they're stupid questions. If I ask a 30 or 40-year-old VA or person like that, they might be afraid like, oh, should I know this already? So they go in there with a fear of asking a question, thinking it could be a stupid question. Um, so my daughter, she just asks a question regardless. And if anything, I reward her for asking questions. Like, so if she catches something and she does a really good job of the SOP, she gets paid. So, I mean, like, so, I mean, much, not minimum wage because uh, uh, she's family, right? But, um, you know, she gets paid if she, if she really uh, uh, provides value for us in that sense. Gosh, this is so cool to see. Your kids are going to be so dialed in by the time that they hit adulthood. I love this. You are helping not only your kids. I mean, you're helping both sides of the spectrum. You had your dad come and live with you and for, for a period of time. And that ultimately, I mean, I think it was that was the catalyst for you getting into the assisted uh, living space. Can you talk a little bit about that, that yeah. process as well? Yeah, so um, I... Uh... I got into the living facility space as a kind of like a silent JV partner. It was super lucrative, but I honestly could not stomach hearing about people dying like on a weekly or monthly basis. I, I just couldn't do it. Like it really amazes me how much emotional toll they got into me. Uh, but then I, uh, one of my business partners uh, and also a client of mine is, is one of the top 1,000 operators in the country. So he came to me, asked me about partnering and bringing capital for that. And then at the same time, um, my dad moved with us for about three months. Um, his health got better for the first month or so. But then after that, it kind of just kept dropping off the cliff to the point where um, there was no other choice but 24-7 care for him. And so then I got into the process. And now, okay, now I'm coming from the patient side of, you know, doing all this. And I just kind of realized, like, how, like, you know, Everything I've done in my life that I've made a ton of money on, it's given me very, very strong purpose. Whenever I've chased money, I've not done well. And and so that's kind of why I've kind of pivoted back into it now. So we've I've also kind of got a list this living space because now I'm doing brokering. I'm, I'm, I'm actually listing them as on the brokerage side. I've also experienced it from my father's side. I also had a healthcare sales job at one point, so I got it from that side. Um, and then obviously like I've been it from a passive investor at that point as well. So I got knowledge from four different viewpoints, which has also made me, uh, and also going to make me a better GP in the long run. Cause I see it from all four spectrums. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. So what kind of direct skill sets do you think transferred from the self storage facilities to the assisted living facilities? So, um, I think that my ability to market um, and uh, to uh, people and also to appeal to people on a scale that, um, so wholesaling is more marketing because I don't know, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. You're, you're generally dealing with like a small mom and pop or you're dealing with somebody who's, you know, relative just died or something like that. And they don't really have an idea of the market. 
if I'm buying a multi-million dollar property, like you're not taking advantage of anybody. You're like, you're getting like maybe a better deal, but you're not, I mean, it's rare that like, oh, I'm buying it 40% market. People don't get to a multi-million dollar business. They don't grow it that big unless they know something about what they're doing, right? So that's the biggest thing is that you have to pivot that. You have to have the technical knowledge. So that's one. I always say that you need three things to be in real estate. You need time knowledge and capital. If you don't have those things, you need to have a way to leverage them or you need to leverage other people to have those. And so really I, I focused on leveraging those three things. And as, as far as time for the sellers, I'm leveraging that. I'm not going to be a headache. I'm not going to guy that's going to ask you 500 questions because I can tell you, you know, from the broker side, one of the things that drives me nuts is when I put a listing up, especially if it's like sub 2 million, it drives me nuts how many people that like don't know anything about the business want to call me and ask me questions. And I'm like, so, you know, we talked about that example of asking questions to qualify. You can also do it the other <laughs> way around. If you ask me a question like, hey, so uh, what software do you have? And that's the very first question you ask me. I guarantee you that I'm getting off the phone with you within five seconds because that, that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things when it comes to the value of the facility. So, so I would say that's the biggest thing I've leveraged is that I've leveraged that. Even though I don't know all businesses, there are very strong similarities between other businesses, whether it's the bank relationships, whether it's the hiring processes, the standard operating procedures, um, or even basically bringing off, you know, my building construction side, because, you know, building construction management transfers almost to all commercial real estate. Totally. And I, lo I love the contrast too, between there's the qualifying questions and the disqualifying questions. So... One of the things that you mentioned was in regards to when you've chased money, it's not been good for you. And when you've followed purpose, it has been. That leads us right into the question of essentially if you had a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, like how would you structure your time? Would it look the same as now or would it be different? Um, you know, uh, I actually had this, I was at well, Brandon Turner's Maui Mastermind and he was talking about this dynamic that like um, when you buy these 10, $20 million deals, most of the time, these deals, like the top deals, only like 3% higher than the rest. So if you could get like a bunch of, you know, millionaires or philanthropists that contribute $100,000, but they overpay a little bit because it doesn't meet their returns for their personal portfolio, but it'd be a great returns for like, okay, the proceeds of this is going to go to an orphanage. Um, then, so, and then also trying to figure out a way, can we also get these guys that donate money more tax benefits than just like the hundred thousand that are donate, like with the depreciation from the real estate. So that is something that, you know, if I hit that 1 billion mark or hundred million mark, that is something I want to explore more into. So, so that's actually a great question. I'm glad that, and I'm plugging Brandon too as well, but, uh, that would be something awesome to kind of find a way to translate that into, uh, uh from real estate into something that could basically benefit others and also get tax benefits and just leverage that overall power. I love that you're saying that. I was actually with Brandon Turner at AJ's event in Boise. And he had mentioned that from the stage where he said, hey, our vision is we want to buy these $50 million apartment complexes, do some value add, turn them into our mobile home parks, turn them into $80 million and then essentially gift the $30 million profits to charity. I thought that was... Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Because I mean, the other thing about it too as well is we see it all the time too. Government gets involved and they're like, oh, we're going to build low-income affordable housing. 
And then, and then we all know this, that when you got people who don't know real estate building low-income housing, what happens is they build expensive housing and lose money on it immediately, right? So why don't we have people actually know what they're doing, actually <laughs> do it, you know? So, so that, that's a no-brainer. Absolutely. Yeah, don't ask somebody for directions that hasn't been where you want to go, right? That just certainly doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, fantastic. So, Charlie Gow, like, what is your vision for the next 12 to 18 months? What are your plans for 2023? How are you looking to grow? So, um, so I, I actually, um, my one sheet when I go abundance, like, uh, when I started the year, I had a very, very strong goals towards building systems. And then, uh, in May of this year, my dad notified me he was going to move in with us. And pretty much I had to blow up that mid year and just say, okay, I cut my goals by like 75%. And I really had to change it to uh, a do less mantra instead of a systems mantra. Um, so I, because I pretty much had to spend, I mean, there was times where I was like not even spending any time for days, maybe even like weeks on the business. I really had to evaluate kind of that, that time transfer. So, you know, we talked about the $15 per hour. One of the exercises that I had to do was I wrote down all the things I do within my business and even outside of my business, like laundry. And I kind of assigned a task uh, or number of like, how much is this worth it to me? How much do I want to keep it? Even if it's not worth it to me and what things do I need out? So, so like, like laundry. Okay. I, I, I like to do my laundry, but I can pay somebody to do it for $10 an hour. So, you know, now building construction management over a thousand dollars an hour consulting over a thousand dollars an hour. My real estate school, which does continuing education credits for people, that makes me like $35 an hour by just doing it because I like, you know, uh, teaching others about commercial real estate. So I, I just had to go through, I cut everything out. Like anything under 100 bucks an hour, we had to find a way to outsource by the end of the year. So, so that's one part of my goal for the year. The second thing is that um, my work life balance prior to my dad moving in was very good. Um, when people ask me what my biggest accomplishment is, is that I'm pretty much there every day to drop my kids off at school and every day to pick them up. It doesn't have to do anything with real estate. It has to do what real estate allowed me to do. Right now, I'm working a lot more hours because I'm still working on his care and also trying to transition some other things. But I want to get my schedule back down to 15 to 25 hours. So those are kind of the two things which kind of go hand in hand. Get rid of the low dollar activities and to basically work less back to where I was before You know, my dad had moved in with us. Wow, I just really love what you just said. That was extremely powerful. Um, Charlie Gao, I mean, um, first off, props to Matt for the amazing introduction, right? But you just told us that your greatest accomplishment is being able to pick up your kids from school and drop them off every day. Like, that's just, that's a mic drop right there. Because that yeah, just shows you what is truly, what is truly valuable in life. You didn't pick them up yesterday. So. <laughs> well, you <laughs> so might miss a day. One day, five weeks yeah. ago, you didn't pick them up. So, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much every day, though. So Nothing like wives to keep yeah, us I mean, humble, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Life. That's what they're there for. Um, I love that. That's a mic drop, man. That's just... I mean, that's showing you where true value is. It's in the relationships, it's in your family. That's that's where you should be devoting your time. So, I mean, I really love everything that you said. Um, Charlie Gao, I mean, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is accomplished one action at a time. So you need to take a deep look at your SOPs. And if they're not simple enough that a 10-year-old can do it, you might need to redo them. 
So that's the assignment for this week. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.